Well, thank you very much for your warm welcome. And it was a very pleasant surprise when I found I'd have the opportunity to come and preach uh, again at the Heath and to fellowship with you as best we can into the present arrangements, uh, even during a time of pandemic. I think it's probably good uh, news for you. There's a clock right ahead of me because I, looking at my watch when I was seeing when it was time to start, I realised I hadn't turned the watch on uh, an hour. So by my, we've still got about an hour and three quarters before I've got to finish. But I'll be working off that, not this. Well, turn with me, please, to Matthew chapter 21. Now, although Jesus was born in Bethlehem, raised in Nazareth, and spent most of his public ministry in Galilee, he was no stranger to Jerusalem. Of course, he was taken to Jerusalem for the very first time by Mary and Joseph when he was only a baby, so they could present him to God in the temple. And it's on that first visit, we believe, to Jerusalem, of course, that uh, Simeon and Anna had the opportunity to meet the one they had been praying for. Then Luke tells us in his Gospel, chapter 2, that Mary and Joseph went up to Jerusalem, as was expected, every year to celebrate Passover. And they would almost certainly have taken Jesus and his brothers uh, and any sisters with them. They definitely took Jesus with them to Jerusalem for the Passover when he was 12 years of age, because you remember they left him behind and there was a big panic. Where is Jesus? And when they went back for him, they found him engaged in a Bible study, leading the Bible study, you could argue, discussing the Old Testament scriptures with the religious teachers. And then the gospel writers tell us that during his three-year-long or three-and-a-half-year-long public ministry, Jesus made at least four separate visits to Jerusalem. Uh, on visit number one that's recorded, he met up with the teacher of Israel, the so-called expert in uh, the things of God, Nicodemus. And Jesus had the audacity to tell him that he must be born again. On another visit, he healed a lame man who had been lying by the pool of Bethesda for 38 years. Later, he healed a, a man blind from birth uh, and then delivered some very famous teachings centred on this phrase, I am the good shepherd. And then, here in Matthew 21, we read about a fourth and final visit that Jesus makes to Jerusalem during the last three years of his life. There may have been others uh, that the gospel writers didn't see fit to record, but four certainly recorded for us. But this fourth and final one is by far the most significant of all his visits to that great city. Because he comes to die and to rise again. He comes to offer himself to God for the sins of his people. He comes to be that sacrifice that was first 
hinted at in Genesis with the clothes of animal skins that were given to Adam and Eve. That sacrifice which was prophesied, foreshadowed with all these Old Testament sacrifices prescribed under the law of Moses. He had said that he would give his life a ransom for many. He had said that he had to go up to Jerusalem to suffer many things and be killed and to rise again the third day. He said that he had come to do the Father's will, to save his people through death and resurrection. And now, finally, the time has come for him to do just that. A few days left by the time we pick the reading up in Matthew 21. But these events, the cross first and the resurrection to come, are now on the horizon, not yet in full view, but they're on the horizon. There's still a little more talking to do, but soon it'll be time to actually do what he has prophesied and to fulfill the mission the Father had given him. Now, in a sense, this last visit to Jerusalem had begun some nine months earlier because I've just said he told his disciples, I must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things and, and rise again. So he makes it clear to them, we're, we're heading to Jerusalem now, but he took what you might call the scenic route to the city. And he stopped off at a number of towns and villages along the way, giving as many people as possible the opportunity to hear him teach and to see him work. But now, at last, he's approaching the city. He spends a day with his very good friends, Lazarus, Mary and Martha in Bethany, just two miles away from Jerusalem. And then finally, he and his disciples set out for the city. Now, up until now, Jesus has travelled on foot. But he decides, Matthew tells us here in verse 2, that he will ride into Jerusalem. He won't walk into Jerusalem. He will ride into the city. And he will ride into the city on the back of a particular kind of animal. On the back of a donkey. A very young donkey, in fact. A, a colt is the technical name. And he sends, in verse 2, two of his disciples. Oh, and uh, sermons have been preached and books written about who are these disciples. Well, if we needed to know, Matthew would have told us. So the identity is not important. But he sends two disciples to collect this donkey from the nearby village of Bethany. And the donkey is brought to Jesus. His disciples lay their outer clothes on it to make it a more comfortable ride for the master. And Jesus mounts the donkey and publicly rides into the city on the back of it. And so the question springs to mind. Why these travel plans? Why did Jesus choose to enter Jerusalem in this manner? We know why he's gone there, to die and rise again. But why is he chosen to enter the city 
on the back of a donkey because it's a deliberate act on his part. It's not just how it turned out, is it? Jesus didn't just happen to see a donkey at the side of the road into Jerusalem and on the spur of the moment think, well, it's been a long journey. I'm rather tired. Why don't I save my legs and ride in on the back of this? Neither was the donkey suggested to him by one of his disciples. In fact, they had to go and get this donkey from elsewhere. Jesus made a conscious decision to enter Jerusalem on a donkey. That mattered to him. That had significance. He was not going to enter in any other way. It had to be on the back of a donkey. He wants to be seen by those who have followed him up from elsewhere, who were in Matthew 21 to begin with, those going on ahead of him, those coming behind. They were people who had travelled with him. And he wants to be seen by the people of Jerusalem in this way. But why? Well, for three very good reasons. And I'm going to look at two of them, God willing, now. And we look at a third this evening. Firstly, by riding into Jerusalem in this manner, Jesus was declaring his identity. He was answering a question that had been going through people's minds ever since he had started teaching and healing. Who is this? And we know that people were asking that kind of question because Jesus once asked his disciples, who do men say that I am? What's the latest polling? You know, what's, the, 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 you know, what, what's top of the list? What do most people say I am? What about just the, 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 the peripheral view? Who do men say that I am? And all kinds of ideas were brought out. You're one of the Old Testament, you're, you're a prophet in the line of the Old Testament. Uh, you're John the Baptist, raised from the dead. All kinds of ideas. And sometimes when he performed his miracles, people would ask, who is this? We never saw anything like this. Uh, and when he taught, people would say, no one ever spoke like this man. This man is one of a kind, is unique, is nobody like him. Who is he? And there was confusion, misunderstanding, speculation, but definitely interest in who he was. And Jesus finally answers the question unmistakably by riding into Jerusalem in this way. Because you see, time and again, fill in a bit of the background here. It's amazing. I've been preaching a series to the miracles of Jesus back in Carmarthen. And it's amazing how Jesus' teaching and his miracles really come to life when you set them against an Old Testament background. And the Old Testament background to this God had told his people that he was going to send them a king. This king would deliver his people from their enemies. He would save them and then he would rule over them. And various kings were given by God to the people in the Old Testament. We think most spectacularly uh, of David and Solomon. But none of those were this ultimate, exceptional king that God was going to send, the one who could provide a full and final salvation to those who worshipped him, the one who could bring a gracious, never-ending kingdom 
into their lives. God promised David, this king is coming. He's going to be from your line. He'll be one of your descendants, but he's going to be unlike any other king that's come before because he's going to reign forever and ever and ever. And every time a new king rose to the throne in the Old Testament era, people must have been wondering, is this the king? Is this him? But no, it wasn't. And then Mary was given a glimpse behind the curtain, wasn't she, of what God was doing. Do you remember when the angel comes to her and says, you're going to have a child, Mary? I mean, that was shocking enough for her. But then she was really blown off her feet when the angel said, this one shall sit on the throne of his father, David. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. And immediately, in an Old Testament Jew's mind, the words would have been flashing. Sitting on the throne of the father David. Now, this exceptional king was going to be a descendant of David. And there'd be no end to his reign. That's what was said about this Messiah king. This great king was coming to save his people and to reign graciously and eternally over them. And Mary is brought to see by the angel. That king has finally arrived, Mary. God has kept his promise. And that king is going to be conceived in your womb. He's going to come out of your body. You're going to cradle him. You're going to dry his tears. You're going to feed him. You're going to change him. You and Joseph are going to nurture him. Joseph will teach him many things. Mary, you're going to teach him. And we know that women in those days would teach their children Old Testament scriptures. And isn't it astonishing to think that Jesus, the Son of God, comes in human form and he's taught the scriptures by this woman Mary and by Joseph and by rabbis in the synagogue and so on, synagogue leaders. But Jesus had mainly kept this from people, that he was this king. He was this saviour that God had promised to send. He is this king that was going to reign graciously over them. He told certain people that he was the Messiah. He told the woman by the well that we read in John chapter 4. You remember, she said, I know when the Messiah comes, he'll tell us all things. He'll, he'll explain it all to us. And Jesus says, well, you're looking at him. It's me. So she knew. Uh, and there were occasions, of course, where the evil spirits declared it. When Jesus would deliver somebody of an evil spirit, and they would say, we know who you are. You're the coming one. Or you're the, you're, you're, you're the son of God. And what would Jesus do? He'd say, Keep it to yourself. Don't you tell anyone. And there are other times when he heals people. Now that's significant, of course, because all these healings were prophesied that the Messiah would do. He'll give sight to the blind. He'll open the ears of the deaf. He'll he'll heal the leper. He'll raise the dead. But it's interesting, very often when people were healed, Jesus would say, and don't tell anyone about it. Um, And the disciples, um, you know, Peter, Who do men say that I am? And Peter, for once, you can congratulate Peter for coming out with it. And he says, you're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. And that was a term for the Messiah. We don't know at that moment whether Peter really understood that Jesus was God himself in human flesh. 
because the son of God and the son of, the, uh, of David, and so on, these were terms of this great king. But certainly Peter grasped, this is the one the prophets spoke about. And Jesus says, and don't tell anyone. Now, I wonder why he didn't want people to know. Well, once he did, that was it. You couldn't go back from there. Because as I want to develop a bit more tonight, the Jews were looking for this Messiah, but they had a complete misunderstanding of what this Messiah was coming to do. They thought the saviour, when he came, was coming to deliver them from the Romans who had invaded and conquered their territory. And they thought that this king was going to reign over an earthly kingdom you could put on a map. You know, that's, that's where he reigns. And it was going to be a political kind of kingdom. And he was going to sit on a throne literally in Jerusalem. And he was going to build back what had been lost from the days of David and Solomon. These great earthly political kingdoms when the Jews were supreme almost in the earth. They were looking for that. A saviour from the Romans who will get rid of these overlords and give us our political independence and reign as a mighty earthly political figure. And once the word really got out that Jesus was the Messiah, the saviour king promised in the Old Testament, then the people would think, great, he's going to lead us in war against the Romans. And they'd rise up with him and seek to overthrow the Romans and bring in this earthly kingdom And Jesus would be killed because the Romans and the Jewish leaders who wanted to keep on good terms in Rome, they don't want any trouble. We don't want to stir the the, the water. We don't want to rock the boat. They would decide to kill Jesus and get him out of the way. Now that would come. There would be time when it would be appropriate for the rulers to kill Jesus to get him out of the way, so they thought. But that wasn't to be then. Christ had come on a timetable. There were things he had to do. He hadn't yet finished, as he would declare on Good Friday. Nothing left to do now, it's finished. So he had to hide, keep under wraps. It's called the messianic secret, where he doesn't actually openly state to large crowds, I'm the Messiah. Lest things get out of hand and he's killed ahead of time. But now it is time. For him to die. Passover time has come. It's time for the real Passover lamb to be sacrificed for the sins of the people. And so he declares his identity in this dramatic way to get things moving. And what do we find? You read it for yourself. In John 11, there's a big council and we've got to kill him. It's better that he dies and then at least the nation will be safe rather than he lives and the whole nation perishes under a Roman a crashing of the uprising. It's time now for him to die, and so it's time for him to reveal the secret. It's time for him to take the lid off. It's time for him to pull back the curtain and make it clear, unmistakable, this is who I am. And he does that by riding in on the donkey, because look, Matthew links those events, Jesus going into a donkey, to a prophecy about this king all this was done verse 4 that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet saying tell the daughter of zion behold listen to this your king is 
coming to you. Great news, the best news they'd ever heard, all the news they were waiting for, that the king is coming. Lowly and sitting on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. But here's the point, it was prophesied that the people would know who this Messiah was, that the people would know who this king that God was appointing to rescue them and reign over them would be, because he would introduce himself by riding into the capital city on a donkey. And so Jesus is deliberately, publicly, unmistakably proclaiming himself to be the Messiah. He is the fulfillment of everything prophesied in the Old Testament. He is the deliverer promised in Genesis 3 to crush the head of the serpent. He is the one who will bear his people's sins and justify many. He is the one who will be bruised for their iniquities. He is the one who will establish a kingdom that will never be overthrown. All these prophecies, all these Old Testament rituals, everything in all those books centers in this one man. He is the saviour God provides for Jew and Gentile alike. It's him. It's Jesus of Nazareth. He is the one who can rescue us from our condemnation before God. He is the one who has offered a perfect atonement for our sin. He is the one who has been crowned by his Father, King of everything. He is the one to whom all authority has been given in heaven and on earth. He is the one you need to rescue you, and he is the one who will reign over you. There's no doubt about it. You must know. You must be in no doubt whatsoever about who Jesus is. Your life, your eternity hinges upon a correct understanding of and response to this one man. Think of all the men, never mind human beings, think of all the men who have ever lived. Some would be regarded by the world as great men who have accomplished great things. But this man is unique. This man is your only hope of heaven. He is your only escape from hell. He's the only one who can answer for what you have done in a way that God will accept. He is the only one who can save you. And he is the one appointed by God to reign. Oh, we human beings appoint, well, we don't appoint, I suppose, our own kings and queens, but we human beings have our own kings and queens and political rulers and whatever. But this is the only man appointed by God to rule over the whole of creation. And so to rebel against him is to commit the ultimate rebellion. It's to rebel against God's anointed. That's not a pastor. 
used to have in the past. You know, don't say anything against the pastor. He's the Lord's anointed. Christ is the Lord's anointed. And to rebel against him is the ultimate crime. So Jesus is not just a figure of interest for you this morning. What an interesting man. What lovely things he said. What a remarkable life. He's more than that. He's everything. He's your only hope of salvation. So if you won't have him as your saviour, you've had it. Because there's nobody else. There may be certain elements about his teaching you don't like at the moment. Well, sometimes you've just got to say, well, I'm not quite sure about that at the moment, and prayerfully the Lord will teach it to me, but I'll just have to accept it because he's my only hope of salvation. I've got to trust in him. I've got to repent of my sin. I've got to throw myself on him just unreservedly because if I don't, I'm lost eternally. And you've got to put yourself under his authority. It's not, well, I wonder, yes, some parts of the Bible are quite nice. You know, I'll follow those, but others are not so keen. No, he's a king. He's God's anointed king over the universe and over the church. And here he rules over his people from his word. And so to rebel against this is to rebel against the king and is to rebel against God's purposes. Christ is this saviour king. And you need to know that. And you need to respond to that appropriately this morning in repentance, faith, and submission. Jesus Christ wants people to know who he is. Yes, there was that period of time, as I said, where you had what we call the messianic secret, where he, he didn't broadcast it. But that was for specific, particular specific reasons at that time. Now there's no reason why that news should be hidden. You need to know it. Cardiff needs to know it. And it's our privilege, isn't it, to declare who Jesus is. So that's the first thing Jesus uh, did by riding in on a donkey. That's the first purpose of it, to declare his identity. And then secondly, and finally for this morning, Jesus chose to enter Jerusalem on the back of a donkey, because by doing so, not only was he declaring his identity, but he was revealing his character. He was saying, this is who I am, and this is what I'm like. Uh, one writer says, uh, this was an exposition of the nature of Jesus's kingship. In other words, I'm the king, and this is the kind of king I am going to be. This is my heart. This is the royal heart towards my subjects. Because it's quite clear from the way Jesus enters that he was utterly unlike any of the earthly kings they were familiar with. When a king is presented to his people for the first time, it's usually an exceptionally lavish affair, isn't it? It's big news. It's a big deal. The monarch will be dressed in costly robes. He'll ride in, uh, uh, ride in an ornate carriage. He'll wear a crown full of jewels. He'll sit on a golden throne in a stunning palace. Listen to this. On December the 4th, 1977, in Bangui, capital of the Central African Empire, the world press witnessed the coronation of his imperial majesty, Bokassa I. 
the price tag for that single event, designed and choreographed by French designer Olivier Brice, was $25 million in the Central African Republic in 1977. $25 million for one event where a king is brought before his people. At 10, 10 a.m., the blare of trumpets and the roll of drums announced the approach of his majesty. The procession began with eight of his 29 official children parading down the royal carpet to their seats. They were followed by the eldest son, heir to the throne, dressed in a white admiral's uniform with gold braid. He was seated on a red pillow to the left of the throne. Catherine followed, the favourite of Bokassa's nine wives. She was wearing a $73,000 gown, strewn with pearls she had picked out herself. And then the emperor arrived in an imperial coach, bedecked with gold eagles and drawn by six Anglo-Norman horses. When the marine band blared the sacred march of his majesty, Emperor Bokassa I, his highness strode forth, cloaked in a 32-pound robe, decorated with 785,000 strewn pearls and gold embroidery. White gloves adorned his hands, pearl slippers his feet. On his brow, he wore a gold crown of laurel wreaths like those worn by Roman consuls of old. And as the sacred march came to a conclusion, Bocassa seated himself on his $2.5 million eagle throne, took his gold laurel wreath off and took his $2.5 million crown topped with an 80-carat diamond and placed it on its on his head. Look at me. Serve me. Glorify me was the spirit of Bokassa. And then we see Jesus, the king of kings. Oh, Bokassa was an earthly king. Here's Jesus, the king of kings, and he is presented to his people for the first time. No expensive clothes. No crown. Well, they'll have a crown for him shortly, but it'll be a crown put on his head in mockery, a crown of thorns. He doesn't have a throne. Well, he will hang on something for people to see him later, but it'll be a Roman cross. And he's got no carriage. Well, he does, I suppose. He's got a donkey. He presents himself deliberately. Because notice, Jesus arranges all this, doesn't he? He decides how he's going to ride in. He arranges his presentation to his people. And he agrees, well, not agrees, he, he organizes, he arranges that he will be presented in the most humble, understated way you could imagine. Because he wants to give an idea to the people of the heart that he has for his subjects. Look how different Jesus is. Other kings like Bokassa seek glory for themselves. That's why they wear expensive clothes and surround themselves with such extravagant possessions because they want to appear majestic. They want to appear magnificent. They want people to be impressed and wowed by them. And so they parade their glory for people 
to see. But this Jesus, he'd had far more glory than this Bocassa would ever have. But he laid it aside. He veiled it. And instead of putting it on full display, look at me, look at who I am, look at what I've got, look at what my titles. Jesus veiled all that. And he came as a weak, humble baby in a poor family's, well, home. And works as a carpenter and so on. Uh, And Jesus humbles himself so astonishingly, limiting himself, restricting himself in frail humanity. And he goes amongst his people, doesn't he? Touching them. We've come, the power of a touch has become real again, isn't it, I suppose, when we can't do it in the pandemic. And you look at the gospel records, lepers, and Jesus touches them. A woman grieving the loss of her only son, and Jesus touches the stretcher he's being carried on, identifying with their situation. Oh, no, you can't do that. You'll be ceremonially unclean. Jesus says, I'm identifying with this situation. I'm touching the stretcher. And Jesus asking people that others rejected, what do you want me to do for you? How can I serve you? How can I bless you? What a different kind of king. (laughs) All other kings, as they seek glory, Jesus veiled his glory to come into this world and die in shame on a cross for his people. Most kings... It's all about getting people to serve them, isn't it? And that's what being king or being a leader is about. Oh, I'll have people to serve me now and impose my will on people. But Jesus came not to be served, but to serve. He came to bless his people. He came to minister to his people. It wasn't, now this is what you can do for me. It was, let me tell you what I can do for you. And as I say, on occasion, those questions, what would you like me to do for you? What a beautiful question. How can I bless you? How can I serve you? I remember once uh, a man, he's not in the church with us now, but a man, a beautiful man, hadn't been converted all that long, but he had such a heart of Christ. And I remember him saying to me once, and he'd say it to other people, it wasn't because of a pastor and so on. I remember him saying to me once, how can I bless you? How is his heart? I want to bless you. I want to refresh you. I want to serve you. I want to do you good. And he said, so you tell me, What's the best way that I can bless you and serve you? The heart of Jesus. What a king coming amongst his people to serve them, to meet their needs, to provide for them supremely, of course, a righteousness and a redemption for them. But you remember the the arguing, wasn't there, amongst the disciples? Who was the greatest? Jesus says, this isn't my heart. I am amongst you as one who serves and he serves by washing feet and he serves by healing diseases and he serves by becoming a curse for our redemption. Most kings are a burden to their people, aren't they? Financially, I mean now. And Bokassa demanded, you know that lavish ceremony that I described to you? Do you know he demanded that the people pay for that? that $25 million, and crippled the country financially. He crushed his people. 
with his demands. But Jesus is no burden to his people. Jesus is a pure blessing. He just comes to lavish his people with all that is good, eternal life. What a king. There's a balance. There he is. His glory is evident in heaven today. And we're looking forward to seeing it, aren't we? When he returns to the earth and reigns in the new creation forever, boy, it's going to be quite a sight. His glory, so we'll see that. And yes, we are to serve him. But his heart is to serve us. What a king. What a king we have today. Reigned in heaven, adored by all the angels. Reigning in heaven, adored by all the angels. Who comes to you today and says, I come to you in blessing. How can I help you? How can I serve you? How can I minister to you? How can I manifest my grace to you? What is it for you today? Salvation, perhaps, is what you need Jesus to come and give you. Perhaps you need him to come and establish your heart as you grieve the loss of a loved one. Perhaps you need him to come and help you as you have difficult decisions to make. Perhaps you need him to come and just strengthen you for whatever trial you're encountering. Well, your king comes to you afresh this morning in glory and yet in wonderful humility. And he comes right up to you. Don't worry about two meter distancing for him. He comes right up to you. And he says, what do you want me to do for you? How can I bless you? What a king. Why would you reject such a king as this? Why would you not want such a man as this to rule over you and to reign over you? Yes, he'll come and sit on the throne. You won't be king of your own life any longer. That's the problem, you see. We want to be king of our own lives. Or you won't be king of your own life. Christ will be king. And he'll manifest his kingship through his word. But his commandments are not burdensome. They're the way of life and peace. They're not always easy to follow because they're contrary to our sinful nature. But when by his grace we're able to follow them, what peace, what joy. And you look at it, you think of it, or so many problems, obviously trials are part of life anyway, but so many problems and difficulties we've had, when you look back, you think, it's because I disobeyed this. If only I'd walked in these paths, I wouldn't have been in this situation. But it's my own foolish rebellion against King Jesus. I've lived a life contrary to him, and it's a life that only sows misery and hearty. So he'll be king, but he's a gracious king, and his kingship in your life brings nothing but blessing and joy. That's the kind of king he is, and he comes to you today and calls you to bow before him. But can I finish with this? Jesus says his people are to reflect him and so I leave with this challenge. Have you got the servant heart? Boy, isn't the pandemic exposed the selfishness, very often even in Christians' hearts? Oh, I, I, I want it like this, and if I can't have it like that, oh, I'm going to cause problems and so on rather than, how can I help others? 
How can I refresh others? I do pray, I don't know any, I'm not speaking to different situations now, but I do pray your spirit as a church is how can I refresh and help and strengthen my leaders, my pastor and his elders? We don't bow slavishly before them, but that should at least be the very fundamental thought in our mind, shouldn't it? How can I be an encouragement? How can I make that burden just that little bit lighter? of leading a church during a time of pandemic. That's servant. servant. That's servant life, isn't it? Christ said, I am among you as a servant. He thought not of himself, but of others. He sought to minister. Is that our spirit? To minister our gifts for the aid of one another. There's a passage, isn't there, in Philippians chapter 2 where, first of all, we're presented with Jesus' amazing servant spirit. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Now, this is service. This is preferring others before ourselves. This is humbling, who, being in the form of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. You know, I'm clinging on to this because I have a right to this and I should have this, so you're not getting this off me. He held it with an open hand, these privileges, and was willing to let them go for the sake of others. He made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death. Now, which one of us here would lay down our lives for another? But not just any old death. He became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Paul says, there's selflessness. There is a servant heart. There's someone whose desire is not to be blessed so much as it is to bless. Not to be served so much as it is to serve. And Paul says, let this mind be in you. You consider, he says, others better than yourself. You look out not only for your own interests, but also for them. Surely, a church that reflects Jesus is not simply a church that has wonderfully orthodox theology about Jesus although that's important. Not simply a church that only sings hymns that are faithful to the biblical revelation of Jesus. That's important. Not only a church that tells people about Jesus, although that's important, but a church that reflects Jesus. A church that has the aroma of Jesus. That when you get amongst its people, you're almost fighting the people off from wanting to smother you with blessing and to help you and to serve you and are willing to die to themselves that they might live for the Lord in serving you. From heaven you came, helpless babe, entered our world, your glory veiled, not to be served, but to serve. And the ultimate act of service to give your life that we might live Who's this? This is our God, the servant king. He calls us now to follow him, to bring our lives as a daily offering of worship to the servant king. So let us learn 
how to serve and in our lives enthrone him. Each other's needs to prefer, for it is Christ we are serving. May we be true subjects of our King. Tonight we look at the third reason Jesus entered Jerusalem on the back of a donkey, um, as well as declaring his identity um, and revealing his character. He was explaining his true mission. More of that uh, this evening. But we're going to sing uh, a hymn to close uh, in the format we're using at the moment. And the hymn is 322. Almighty God, your word is cast like seed into the ground. A hymn reminding us we've heard the word now. Is it going to bear fruit in our lives? 322. Father, we do thank you for providing us with a Messiah, a deliverer who will graciously rule and reign over us. We pray, Lord, that we would today, for the first time, or we would afresh, crown him our King, embrace him as our Saviour, and we pray, Lord, that we would indeed follow the principles of his kingdom to serve and not be served. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.